Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. Allow me to introduce Melinda Brianna Epler. She has more than 25 years of experience elevating brands and developing business innovation strategies for startups, Fortune 500 companies, and global NGOs. As CEO of Change Catalyst, Melinda is a strategic diversity, equity, and inclusion advisor for executives, entrepreneurs, investors, and activists around the world. As part of her change-making work, she is an inclusive leadership coach She trains executive and management teams and builds learning and development solutions for clients. Melinda is the author of How to Be an Ally by McGraw-Hill and the host of the popular Leading with Empathy and Allyship podcast, of which she had me on a while back, and I'm so grateful for that opportunity. I remember that conversation fondly. She is also a TED speaker, award-winning documentary filmmaker, and former marketing and culture executive. She speaks, mentors, and writes about diversity and inclusion, empathy, and entrepreneurship. So, podcast community, if you would take to the chat, find your favorite emoji, your favorite words and sentiments, whatever it is that feels right in the moment, but do me a favor and help me to welcome Melinda Brianna Epler as our guest co-host today. Let her know how much we really appreciate her being here with us, and I am going to spotlight her so that I can bring her into the conversation. Melinda, we're so glad you're here. One of the first questions I always ask of my guest co-host is for them to take a moment to share something with us that we may not be able to learn about them from reading their bio or even looking at their LinkedIn profile. So if you could just take a moment to think about that question and then answer and then greet this audience in whatever other way that feels appropriate for you, we <laughs> would love that. <laughs> Welcome, well, my friend. Hello. Good to see you. And thank you for having me on. And hello, everybody. Um, it looks like you're all across the U.S. And um, uh, so, yeah, I'm excited to be here. So something, I, you know, I, I will say that I'm kind of an open book on social media, so <laughs> I'm not sure there's a whole lot. Um, but many people probably don't know that I ride motorcycles. My my um, my husband and I uh, both ride motorcycles. I'm actually uh, a, an ambassador for Revit, which is a um, motorcycle brand, uh, apparel brand, and one of the few brands that actually designs for women. Not a lot there. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so on the weekends, we're often out riding our motorcycles around our the, the Bay Area. And then we also, uh, in August of last year, we sometimes we take some longer trips. So in August of last year, we went from San Francisco all the way down to the end of Baja and back. So it was ah. a, um, it was a month long motorcycle trip. Uh, it was amazing. Amazing. Oh, no, that is incredibly exciting. Um, and so I, it's given us a little bit of additional, you know, insight into Melinda. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. And it reminds me that you are on the West coast. And so it's really super mm-hmm. early for you. So thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much for yeah. saying yes to our invitation and getting up early on our behalf. We do appreciate that. So, so much of your work centers around empathy and allyship. And so, and I value that. So I want to make sure that I give us a little bit of a deeper understanding as to why that has been your, your, your path. And so has your upbringing influenced your thoughts about allyship and empathy growing up? If you can answer for us, who had the most influence over you and are there areas Melinda within your childhood that you wish would have better prepared you to understand marginalized groups? I know those are loaded questions all kind of buried in there together but there's a I lot in there like, yeah. yeah there's a lot in yeah. there um but yeah really interested about your background and how it has influenced the work that you do right now mm-hmm. yeah so I grew up in Oakland California and then in Seattle in the south part of Seattle so I um I think I actually have kind of an unusual I didn't know it was unusual at the time but an unusual um upbringing where I I went, I grew up in neighborhoods that were very diverse um, Mm -hmm. and uh, where I was often the minority in, in, in groups. And so um, I thought that was normal and it wasn't until I got to college that I was like, wait a minute, wait, everybody didn't grow up that way. Um, (laughs) And then, and then I'm reflecting on it now, I realized that, you know, as a result, that's probably one of the reasons why I do the work that I do is to correct that once I realized, and I was in college, oh, wait, um, that, that, um, not only is um, 
yeah, there's a real lack of inclusion in our world, in our workplaces, and in equity. Um, and and so when I got to college, I kind of realized that was um, that was you know that, that that there was a lot of work to do. That's when I kind of started to work to create change. Um, and I will say, in terms of allyship, that wasn't a concept that any of us really knew at the time. Right. right. Um, and uh, so. Uh, yes, I work to create change um, to uh, to correct inequities. Since I, you know, when I was in high school, I it was back in the Cold War, so that's aging me a bit. And I um, created a sister school with a school in Ra in the Soviet Union at the time um, to mm -hmm. to bridge peace because um, between our cultures. Um, and and so that our sister school was in Uzbekistan now. Um, and uh, was then part of the Soviet Union. And um, that in itself, uh, that experience uh, changed me quite a bit. But I will say that um, to answer the question about empathy, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit more, but I grew up in a, in a family that didn't show a lot of empathy and didn't have a lot of empathy for each other. We didn't, um, in, in terms of like physical uh, interactions mm -hmm. um, uh, and in, and facial expressions and so on. There was a lot, there wasn't much in my family. I didn't learn it from my family. I had to learn it afterwards. Uh, mm -hmm. I realized that when I got to college that I, 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 that's not how I wanted to show up in the world. So I really worked to create, uh, to, to learn how to be empathetic, how to show empathy. And now I teach it, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and 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 I guess the, there was one other question in there about who influenced me most. Mm -hmm. There's no one answer. I read a lot of books, and mm -hmm. um, and certainly there were a lot of authors that really influenced me. And then in my family, I would say my grandfather probably influenced me most. He grew up in the depression and was an entrepreneur and had this kind of way of creating opportunities and creating businesses when. There were very few opportunities, and um, and and so he was he was scrappy and would um, and did a lot of different things um, to generate. I wouldn't even say wealth, but generate money and income. And I learned a lot from him. He's a very he was a very um, entrepreneurial spirit, and also lived to be one hundred and four. <laughs> so <Wow. laughs> that's something wow. I aspire to. <laughs> That is, that is amazing. I, I love all the stories that you were able to share just in answering those those prompts. Um, we talk often at NWC about the value of storytelling um, and, and even the value of helping people to understand our DEI story, what anchors us right to this work. And even in what you just shared, I, I've identified a number of anchors. And I think it certainly helps us to have a, a, a deeper appreciation for um, how this work found you and how you found the work, right? And why it's mm -hmm. now part of your 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 um your your everyday life. So yes, we are going to talk a lot about empathy today. And I want to dig in to talk about your understanding of how in which you see the relationship between empathy and leadership. All good leaders have to have empathy and show empathy. That's the key is is not just having it yeah. but showing it. Mm -hmm. um, we build insight about somebody. We really understand their world, experience their world, understand their world and what they're uniquely experiencing. And then the second part is showing that empathy is is um, really recognizing their unique experience. And and then ultimately we'll talk about um, allyship is the next step is you know taking, yeah. taking that and putting it into action yeah. um, so i mean a good leader needs to be able to understand what's happening in their team's lives so that they can support them so that they can motivate them the best way so they you you need to be a you need to build that empathy and understanding for where somebody wants to grow in their career um, right. and support them along the way, otherwise you're going to lose them. And speak up and speak out when something is happening in the world that is impacting them, right? And mm -hmm. if you're not doing that as a leader, you're going to lose people as well. You're not showing empathy. You're not um, reflecting the values that you may have around diversity, equity, and inclusion if you're not actually mm -hmm. speaking up or speaking out. And yeah. then also uh, that checking in right? Checking in when right. something is happening at home that is impacting somebody, um, because that impacts your work, that impacts um, your well-being and your ability to thrive 
both outside of the workplace and inside of the workplace. And 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 lastly, one more is when somebody is experiencing exclusion, that mm -hmm. empathy is essential. You need to be listening with right. empathy. And then once you understand the situation, working together to find a solution and supporting them, showing empathy, taking action. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I love all of that. I, I too am a big believer in the importance of leaders having um, great level of empathy. I think that it's what allows us to um, have our compassionate nature to help support colleagues and particularly those to your point that may be part of marginalized communities and have um, a different set of challenges to navigate within the workplace. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and that's why I, I love connecting it back to stories is because I think that one of the best ways for someone to be able to fuel that level of empathy for someone is to hear them share a story and to be vulnerable enough to share their story as well. Um, and so stories connect us. And I yeah. think that that level of connection is very much um, a part of leaning into that, that empathy and that care that is shown. Yeah. And I, I think that one of the things as a leader, leaders need to be doing is developing a space for their teams to tell those yeah. stories about themselves so that they can yeah. learn about each other so they can build empathy for each other um, because they, once we build more empathy for each other we're less likely we're, we're less likely to harm each other through words and actions we're um, less likely to let biases be kind of our default right we're now yes. we're actually there's a, a real person we understand them we're not defaulting to our biases so much we're sometimes questioning our biases we're unlearning some things as we get to know each other better yeah, yeah. It takes intentionality. Um, that's what I'm hearing. It takes intentionality for that. Yeah. And so if someone, I, I really love getting practical, right? Peeling back all the layers, getting to the root cause. And so we're talking about empathy. We're talking about the intersection of empathy and leadership. But for someone who is questioning whether or not they are an empathetic leader, what would you say to them that allows them to self-assess? Um, what does that look like in action? Being an empathetic leader. So how do they assess whether they're an, an, an empathetic leader? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think you. Is it one of those things where you know or you don't? No, I think that if you're a truly empathetic leader, your team is going to tell you. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah. It's, you know, my team regularly talks about how important it is that I did this important it is I did that and thank you for the for really listening in this moment thank you you know there's nothing I needed except to be to have you listen um, yeah. right and there's so many yeah. so if you're if you're really checking in with your team if you're really having those one-on-one -on -one conversations and and you're really showing empathy for them they're probably going to let you know and if yeah. they're not letting you know then then you might you know work a little bit harder um, and well, then we may I not would... be the judge of that. This other people. I love that. I love that, Melinda. It's, yeah. you know, really we get our cues from other people. Do they sense that we're showing up as an empathetic leader? I think that's important. Yeah. 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 Finish your thought. Uh, oh, what was I going to say? Um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I lost it. It's, to it's totally fine. I, I threw you off. It's just totally fine. Okay, it's all so good. Ship. Yeah, let's talk about how um, empathy shows up in ally work. Yeah, so um, allyship is empathy in action at its yeah. core, right? Yeah. So we're learning yeah. about each other, we're building that empathy, and then we're showing empathy. And then the last piece is we're taking action in support. And, um, and so in order to be able to take that action and support, you need to build empathy for somebody. You need to really build an understanding of how you can best support them, right? So empathy and, um, and allyship go hand in hand. I, I actually don't think you're going to be a good ally if you don't have that empathy first. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. yeah, if you don't have it first, I like that because oftentimes it's that level of empathy that draws drives us to want to be an ally, to want yeah. to be able to support others that may not be as privileged as we are or, um, or don't have maybe full opportunity for success. And so we wanna advocate for them. So I, I love yeah. that. Uh, so tell me something you think is true about allyship that most people either agree with or don't agree with. I actually want you to answer both of that, either agree with or they don't agree with. What are some of those misnomers about allyship? Hmm. I think a big one is I don't have time 
I don't have time to be an ally. I don't have time yeah. for allyship. Is yeah. really they're saying I don't have time for diversity, equity, and inclusion. But uh, yeah, I don't have time for allyship, and it's you know it it, it it takes a moment, right? And there, I mean, if you think back and into how allies have really impacted you in your life, it's often the little moments that you know took thirty seconds or you know maybe took five minutes. Um, that's it. It's mm -hmm. not it's not a long time consuming thing. You don't have to know everything. I guess this is the second one. You don't have to know everything in order to be yeah. an ally, in order to be a good ally, right? None yeah. of us know everything, right? I, yeah. I, I wrote a book on it and I still am learning, right? It, it's, uh, we're all, it's still a work in progress. We're all still learning. It's a journey. And, and the key is to do something. Um, yeah, because when you're do not something. doing, yeah. And, and I think that's the, um, maybe the third is that, you know, as long as I, I might be fearful that I'm going to do harm if I take action and it's not the right action. But in actuality, that if you're not doing something, you might be creating more harm. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah. You know, I think that one misnomer around being an ally, um, although there's some really practical things people can do and probably put into their, their daily habits, you know, immediately, but it also takes um, learning about what true allyship is. And I think mm -hmm. sometimes we forget that that's also important, right? Um, you know, I believe that in order for us to be effective at being an ally, because uh, allyship is all about action. But it's not just any action, it's useful action, which means how do we ensure that our actions of supporting are useful? We have mm -hmm. to get proximate to the lived experiences of those in which we're allying for. And if those aren't our experiences, we really don't know too much about it, to your point, Melinda. So we mm -hmm. have to make sure that we're always on this constant learning journey. Yeah. And, um, uh, and learning that's and, oh, good. Learning and unlearning. I think yeah. that's where you were or going, learning right? learning and unlearning. Exactly. Yeah. And then relearning, yeah. right? We want to relearn and with with, yes. the, with, the, with new perspectives and, and skills. Yeah. 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 So yeah. there's so much talk these days, and even I would venture to say criticism about how brands and individual leaders are falling into the trap of performative allyship, right? Mm -hmm. And so I want to get you just to express your thoughts on that. You know, what is your take on how people can avoid falling into the trap of being perceived as their allyship, being performative, or, or even I'm saying perceived because I, I want to get people benefit of the doubt, but sometimes maybe it is because they are deeply rooted in and motivated by what this is going to do for self versus what it's going to do for someone else. And so mm -hmm. talk a little bit about performative allyship and how to avoid it. Yeah, so uh, performative allyship is essentially when you say you're an ally, or you um, you say you're an ally, but the, the actions don't actually follow follow that, right? They mm -hmm. that you you may um, as a brand you may um, change your logo this month to reflect Black History Month, next month to reflect Women's History Month, and next the next month to, to um, reflect Pride, but you're not actually doing internally to create the systemic inequities um, against marginalized uh, people with underrepresented identities in your workplace, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's performative allyship at the brand level is like um, doing it for marketing sake uh, without okay. actually doing the internal work of creating the much needed change. Uh, in and um, really creating a diverse, equitable, and inclusive company. Um, and so uh, performative allyship, I think, comes from people not building that understanding, that empathy, and really acting in support. Like if you really understand how somebody wants to be supported as an ally, your actions should follow that, right? And so if you're really doing that work, <laughs> if you're really doing that work, then then you're you're not likely to be performative, right? Um, but yeah. you have to do that a little bit of work to really build empathy, to really learn and unlearn and relearn. Um, you know, a lot of brands will do one thing over here that's really great. They'll have ERGs. They'll have um, you know they, they may have like a, a a whole series of events for Black History Month, but then mm -hmm. you know there are whole teams where um, in, internally, there's microaggressions and biases happening regularly on those teams, teams where Black people don't feel safe on, on their teams, where they have um, compensation inequity across race mm -hmm. and gender, right? And, um, mm -hmm. and when you look at 
their team, you see that if there's diversity on their team, it's the marginalized people are at the bottom. They're not at the leadership right. level, right? So right. Um, there can be some kind of levels of performative or or in some in some parts of companies, they can be performative where other parts, they're really genuinely working on change too. It's not all black and white, right? Sure. Yeah. No, absolutely. I love that you brought to the conversation, um, the optics of it, right? And and while optics aren't everything, um, it's, it's context and it is important in shaping mm -hmm. people's perceptions and helping them to understand the level of credibility or the lack thereof that organizations really should be assigned to their commitment from a DEI perspective. You know, we often say that diversity is broad, right? It's not just about the optics of age, race, gender, right? Those are really important dimensions and we, we can't deny them at all. In fact, they should be prioritized in many regards, but there are also many, you know, dimensions of diversity that, um, are a part of the equation mm -hmm. but what i often say is that we have to attack the optics right because if we don't attack the optics then it's hard for someone to really appreciate when an organization will tout its leadership and commitment if time after time after time decade after decade we're still seeing the same thing over and over right. again without that change evidence of that change because that means that maybe the due diligence and the rigor is not being exercised the way that it needs to and so um i just wanted to highlight that because yes i i and i'm sure you hear this a lot too melinda there's so much um criticism around how many brands particularly after george Floyd's murder it's like everyone was really just settling into okay mm -hmm. We have to now get engaged. We have to do something. This is this is now a higher priority for us. Mm -hmm. But how which they were showing up and delivering upon that in many ways was performative, and it was causing more harm. And so I yeah. I appreciate that um, we are as practitioners, as a body of as a collective, that we are continuing to put this at the forefront of these conversations. Yeah, yeah, and I would say that's still going on too, right? Oh yeah, brands have you know several brands. Um, you know, they they internally they had conversations. They may have had some events, and then that was it. Or they hired one person to focus yeah. on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and then didn't give them budgets or support to do right. their work effectively. I mean, there's so many different ways that that's still playing out. Um, yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah, absolutely true. So. I know that your book is about allyship and empathy, but I want you to give us a little bit more of what people can expect if they get your book um, mm -hmm. is more of a guide. You know, what, what are some of the key takeaways that you often like to um, to socialize, to excite people about this this wonderful tool? Mm, yeah, well, the, the book is full of actionable steps you can take to be an ally. You know, I wrote it because I saw so many people wanting to take action but not knowing what to do and and seeing um allyship as this kind of nebulous concept and not having a really guide a guide a real um way to to start learning deeply and then taking action and and so it's a menu of actions with some skills building and tools included um and and i would say you know it's, you know, it's, it's a guide and it's a, it's a, it's a beginning, or if you're in the middle of your work yeah. around diversity, equity, and inclusion, I suspect you'll still find some, some gems in there because, um, I really looked at allyship for all, for people of all different, uh, mm -hmm. underrepresented identities. And, and the reality is that most of us still have more work to do in that, in, in, in different, in, in really learning about different identities, what biases might be coming up, what microaggressions might be coming up and other ways that people might be impacted um and yeah i go through seven different steps for being an ally in the book and um and there's some exercises along the way and ways to really deepen your work and learning as well i love it and we have placed um a link to your book into the chat awesome. so i hope this community will will definitely take advantage of that and get that book and, and see it as a tool and a resource for you so you said seven steps to becoming an ally we won't have you give away all of the things but if there's maybe one or two really critical steps that you feel like you just get um you enjoy talking about maybe more than the others i'm sure all of them are important and they work together but what would be maybe the one or two that um you would like to share a bit more about with this audience Mm. Well, we talked a lot about learning and unlearning and relearning. Right? Yes. That's a, yes. that's step one. Um, step two is to do no harm. 
And yeah. so is really understanding and correcting our biases. That's number one, that's kind of the foundation. And then recognizing and overcoming our microaggressions. And microaggressions are yeah. ways that our biases might be coming through in our words and actions and creating harm. Yeah. Um, and so in, in the book, there are tables of different biases that might be occurring in the workplace, um, tables of different microaggressions that might be working, coming to play in the workplace. And so the first step is our own internal work, right, mm -hmm. of learning what those biases and microaggressions are and doing the self-regulation, that internal work of pausing and, um, and really making sure that biases aren't coming up in our words and actions before we speak, act, make decisions. Yeah. And then the next step is to stand up for what's right, is to to really take action and interrupt biases and microaggressions. Um, and so there's a whole chapter on um, what that looks like to interrupt microaggressions. Uh, there's some scripts in there that you, there's a process and some scripts in there to really help guide you and give you some ideas because in the moment that a microaggression happens, it just, it happens so quickly that some, and sometimes we're in, in shock ourselves. Like, I can't believe what, did, what, what just happened. Right? right. And so having some scripts at the ready can, can um, help you to, um, to actually take action in that moment. Um, and so, yeah, I guess, and, and then, you know, I don't want to leave out advocacy that is really important as well. So there's a whole chapter on how do you, how do you advocate for people? What does that look like? What are the different types of advocacy and, and leading the change, how we can all be leaders and lead the change. No, it sounds like a terrific tool. And um, I have my book on order, so I cannot wait to mm -hmm. dig in and be in conversation with you about it. You know, you use language, you said bystander. And I heard someone the other day said, uh, I tend to prefer to use, um, you know, upstander because when you're bystanding, it almost sounds a little bit like you're a little bit passive about jumping in. We need people to really move with some sense of urgency. And so I just found that to be interesting. So as you mentioned that word, it came it came to mind for yeah, me. That's absolutely true. You, you can't, yeah. allyship is not about sitting on the sidelines. It's about taking yeah, action. Exactly. Exactly. And and what I love about the approach you've taken to your book, which which is similar to, to the mindset that I have when I was writing my book, I want it to be a guide, a tool, a resource. I think that oftentimes we, when we find ourselves in those situations, the reason that we walk away regretting that we didn't say what we thought we should have said, or we didn't do what we thought we should have did is because we weren't prepared. Mm -hmm. And so it brings me to my next question, which is how do we, Melinda, get people to take more of a proactive approach to upskilling themselves around being an ally instead of just, okay, I'm in the moment, it happens, and then I was not prepared. I mm -hmm. feel like there's a difference between being you know, proactive than being reactive and how can we help people to understand that again just like most of the tools and how in which we develop ourselves it takes us being upskilled around that and it looks like maybe getting your book and you know mm -hmm. participating in other conversations that helps yeah. us to have those tools in our back pocket that we can pull out in the moment of need yeah. so do you have any thoughts about how we can get people to shift from a you know a reactive to more of a proactive approach to upskilling around this yeah, I have a few thoughts. One is is the is actually learning. You need you need yeah. to better better understand what microaggressions are and um, what microaggressions might be happening and be able to name that. That's that helps a lot. Um, and so learning about microaggressions and then learning some scripts and 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 making them your own. Right, you want to make yeah. those scripts your own, and and doing all of that before you get into a situation where you're going to need it. Right, and so you do that pre work of learning and developing those skills, you consistently put it into practice, right? And not, I mean, you can put it into practice in your friends group as well, right? Not just at work, but um, start practicing it with your friends, start practicing it with your family. I mean, that that makes it, that it's easier to do with your family, right? So yeah. um, start taking, taking some actions with your family too, because we all have biases and microaggressions that come up oh, in, our, in our families and our friends, um, right? And and then so that's one is one is to learn. The second would be to put it into practice, um, and you can do it not just at work but outside of work as well. Um, if you're if you're a leader, there's a lot of things that you can do proactively to reduce 
biases and microaggressions to begin with. So they're less mm -hmm. likely to happen, right? Absolutely. Whether that's creating um, better meeting processes and structures, that's um, educating your team around biases and microaggressions. Because once you start doing that, then you all have the standard, the same kind of vocabulary, a foundational vocabulary, and you can start calling each other in. So you call each other in to learn um, when a bias can, comes up, everybody knows about biases, you can, as a leader, say, you know what, are any biases coming up right now? Because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking there might be. And then you talk about it together, what biases are coming into play here. And, and then you can find a solution together to make sure that that's, that's not happening in the future and, 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 and change that. So, so the education and the creating processes also are really huge in, in being proactive. Yeah, that's why I'm really a big fan of learning experiences that allows for role playing, you know, or maybe giving mm -hmm. people scenarios yeah. and they have to think through what would your actions be as an ally, you know, in this particular scenario. I think that's important because I don't know about you, Melinda, but how many times have we found ourselves in conversations with someone where they um, just openly share that I just routinely go and I just role play with people around. If you were to say this, this is how I would show up as an ally. No, right. we have to almost <laughs> create those experiences, right? Mm -hmm. Because I don't think that many of us are just going to do that on our own. Mm -hmm. and, and again, I think that goes back to being proactive and really committed to this versus, um, you know, just reactive. And so, I want to yeah. talk about process bias because we talk about how you know people have bias and we know that it's just our human nature. Um, and so we can do all the things to try to prevent ourselves um, from bias showing up, but we're not going to be able to do that 100%. It's going to show up because we are humans. Mm -hmm. But I think that sometimes we spend so much effort on trying to correct the bias in people that we don't talk enough about process bias. Right. And I just want to get your take on that because people are the ones who are developing processes, right? They're the ones <laughs> who are the process. Yeah. So Let's dig into that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you have to do both, right? You have to work on the individuals because the individuals are the ones that are reinforcing the processes, creating the processes, reinforcing the processes, right? Yeah. And 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 the processes themselves and the systems behind those processes, and, yeah. right? So, so there there's, I mean, there are so many different biases that come into play in our hiring system in our hiring processes right from all every single step of the way from from writing the job description how are we writing that job description who are we really trying to appeal to in that job description is it actually inviting people with underrepresented identities to your company often it's not um, often we're actually signaling that we don't want under people with underrepresented identities right. to come to our workplace. So it's all the way from the job descriptions and your outreach, um, you know, right. where are you reaching out to candidates? Are you um, going just to the networks of people that are working in the company that is not a diverse company, right? Yeah. Hmm. Maybe there's going to be right. some issues right there, right? Absolutely. So that's just the beginning of the process. And then all the way through the interview, the same thing. The offer is another really key place where that's where inequity really um, right. um, takes hold from the very beginning of somebody first working in the in that workplace is if your offer is not equitable with uh, offers of other people that you've given the same job to, right? That um, that's where the pay gap, the compensation gap starts and it continues throughout people's careers because as you um, get promotions, you're getting percentages, you're not getting. Right. Yeah. Right. No, absolutely. And, and to, and I think this question in some, you know, maybe markets, geographies, maybe illegal, but, you know, there used to be, uh, it used to be common practice for a lot of hiring managers and recruiters to ask, you know, what's your current salary? And it's because mm -hmm. they're trying to match mm -hmm. instead of really trying to align it with what's commiserate value. And, um, and so I, I'm loving the, the conversations and the greater transparency, it's still a long way to go, but I'm loving the greater transparency that's occurring around, you know, trying to prevent some of those inequities um, in mm -hmm. areas, you know, such as pay. Yeah. So as we and said, bias is going to show up. I want yeah, go ahead. Seems like you wanted to comment on that. I'd love for you to. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it, so the next step is um, being transparent about, about about what the salary is on the job description. 
And I would say that's not enough because I, I, I know somebody recently who was interviewing for a job and well, they were interviewing, right? And and so a, a recruiter reached out to them and and said, hey, would you interview for this role? And the, the person was like, you know, the salary is really low on that. Um, but they they interviewed anyway. And in that interview, they talked about the how low the salary was. And they were like, oh, yeah, we can bring that up. Mm. Not everybody's yeah. going to have that conversation. Not everybody exactly. knows to have that conversation, right? And yeah. and there's an ex in, in addition to the the compensation gap, there's an expectation gap as mm -hmm. well because people with underrepresented identities have for so long been underpaid. We expect to be paid less, right? And right. that's that's just if you're offering less, that's perpetuating that that inequity. If you're not offering the same amount, yeah. No, absolutely. 100%. So I'm going to, I'm going to performative, right? <laughs> just yes, to go back to that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Going back to performative. Um, I see that a hand is up. And so I do want to go to that question uh, before I um, ask my next question. And I do want to also take this opportunity just to invite the audience. And if you have a question, um, use the raise hand feature. It lets me know that you're willing to be spotlighted and um, unmute yourself and share, or I'm also watching the chat. So I would love to bring your voice to the conversation. And Tracy, welcome. You are one of our, um, our repeat um, attendees. So it's always great to see you and have you um, present your question or commentary. Thank you. So, um, thank you. I have two questions. I'll try to be brief. Um, the first one is, what do you do when people say that they have over empathized and they just, it's almost like leading to some type of burnout or physical um, overwhelm on their part if they're an ally and they're overwhelmed? Um, I always say I don't get to opt out because the color of my skin, you know, I can't yeah. just say, oh, I'm overwhelmed. I have to be black all day. But that's a different story. Um, so what do you do, say to people that feel that way? And the second part is, do you believe empathy is an innate quality or is it something that you can actually um, grow into? Thank yeah. you. Um, I'll ask, answer the, the second question first, actually. Um, uh, it is not an innate quality. I, I shared early, at the beginning that I grew up in a family that did not show empathy. I didn't learn um, how to show empathy uh, when I was younger. I, um, it just my family just didn't do that. Um, we didn't, we didn't share emotions. We, it, it, yeah. Um, and so I realized that's not how I wanted to show up in the world. Um, so I took action to really you know, what does empathy look like? I actually worked on some research projects um, to really understand empathy. What does that look like? What does it look like on our faces? What does it look like embodied, right? Um, what does it look like to listen with empathy? Um, and then what does it look like to show empathy? How do, what do I need to know in order to be able to do that effectively? So I am an example and also research shows that you can, uh, there's lots of research that shows that you can develop empathy um, and that empathy can be learned. The second, the, the first question you asked around um, that burnout or of, of over empathizing or compassion fatigue is the other yeah, term for it, fatigue. right? Um, is is real, um, mm -hmm. you know? And I would say that um, diversity, equity, uh, the people that are working on it daily, um, on this work daily can have compassion fatigue. There's a lot of turnover in diversity, equity, and inclusion um, roles in, inside of companies because um, this work is hard. It's not, it's undervalued and, um, and you're taking on so many, you're listening to so many people, you're taking on um, the emotions of so many people and you're, you're, um, and then trying to act, to take action on on the that. And if you're not taking care of yourself, if you're not allowing, you know, doing work, it's I would say it's um, it's mindfulness work because you have to get it out of your brain and, and your emotions. You also have to get it out of your body because you can take it on your body as well and um, and your spirit too, right? Um, and, and that's why we, we have a lot of burnout and diversity, equity, and inclusion professionals. And, um, and it, it's unfortunate and, and companies can do better there and by acknowledging that. But I think your question was more uh, around people that say, well, I, I just don't, I, I don't have any more room for empathy to uh, be a good ally, right? Um, and in that case, 
one thing is I do think that you can step out from time to time, but you have to step back in, right? (laughs) If you, if you really, you know, everybody from time to time needs, needs some to be refilled. And I, you know, I was talking to, um, I actually went on a a meditation retreat in in December for a, a week because I needed to be refilled. And my meditation teacher said, you've got to fill yourself up to what overflows right? And once it overflows, then you can help other people. And so, yes, there is that. Um, And I think all of us who are practitioners, all of us who are underrepresented, all of us who experience marginalization regularly need to do some of that. Um, And there's still room to do little things that can make a big difference in somebody's life. It doesn't take very much, you know, and, 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 and you're absolutely right that you know, some of us don't have the ability to just turn it off, right? Because it's daily, it's hourly, it's it's regularly. So, mm-hmm. yeah, um, motiv- find that motivation, find that that way to take action. Yeah, thank you so much, Tracy. Really insightful questions. Appreciate you being here today. Um, yeah, Melinda, compassion fatigue is incredibly real. And I love the fact that um, you amplify that it is okay if we are feeling that our emotional capacity is not there for us to be an effective ally to step back and that season and that moment, right? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that we need to stay there indefinitely, right? There's there's an ultimate goal here, which is to get back at it, right? But we can't pour from an empty cup. So I appreciate everything that you said. You know, some people are just naturally wired to always feel like they need to be on and available for other people that we don't necessarily lean into that self-care that's needed. And so I, again, I just appreciate the balance um, um, approach that you brought to to your response for that. And I also love the mindfulness and the self-awareness because that allows you to know what kind of position am I in right now? What state am I in right now? Mm-hmm. What, you know, how full is my cup right now? And without that pausing and that self-reflection, we could just continue to keep going, 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 going like the Energizer Bunny. And then it's like we shut ourselves down or, or something else, you know, uncontrollable shuts us down yeah. because we have not taken the time to really reflect and assess how am I showing up right now? And what do I need right now? And how do I satisfy that so that I can be at my best to do mm-hmm. the work? of supporting others and as an ally. So I, I love that. Yeah. yeah it, it, something is... really... Oh, okay. I was just going to say, you said something else as you were sharing um, with Tracy, but you said that um, empathy has a certain look about it. And I'm paraphrasing here, but you said, even like, what is your face doing? What is your body doing? Mm-hmm. And it led me to just, you know, consider that sometimes our empathy has a lot to do with our body language as much as what we're saying and what we're doing in the moment. And so I, I know that you referenced that your research kind of touched a little bit on that. What are some what are some high level takeaways and maybe some tips that you can share with this audience for people who want to be a bit more intentional about making sure their body posture um, and their facial expressions is one that supports you know being an empathetic leader? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's it's really important whether we're in uh, in person. This is the in person in physical locations in the same meeting, right? Um, or we're virtually as well. Um, and it, when we're virtual, we're only seeing this part of ourselves, and so all of that is amplified. All our facial expressions are amplified. And so when you're going from meeting to meeting, sometimes you can carry the last meeting on your face and your body, right? You know, perhaps, yeah, if that last meeting was frustrating, perhaps that last meeting was hard. And so you come into a meeting, you're like, you know, like you're not, you're not really giving, um, you're not really presenting in a way that is going to uh, bring out the best in people in that meeting, right? So you have to take a moment to reset that mindfulness again, right? You have to take a moment to reset. You might be really stressed out about something else that's going on um, in your life, right? And and then you just for a moment, just reset. How do I want to present in this moment for this team, for the for the people on this on this call? For you know, if you're if you're actively listening and really paying attention, it's gonna make a big difference to the person on the other end. If they're presenting something, if they are nervous, 
if they're, you know, just having a bad day, your presence can make a difference for them. And that's, again, that's like, when we talk about, like, it's not that hard to be an ally. It's just, right. you know, nodding and really paying attention makes a big difference. I love yeah. that. Yeah. That active no, listening, that. showing that you're listening makes a yeah. big difference. And the intentionality around the check-ins, you know, that is in essence, if you're asking, how are you showing up to this meeting? You know, that is giving people space and time. I think that is part of the, you know, the empathetic nature of, of a leader showing forth. So yes. that, that's awesome. Um, so you have a major release, I understand, that's coming up oh. in April. And I would love for you to talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Well, I can't talk about everything um, because it's sure. coming. It's, sure. it's still a ways away, um, but we are. Um, I can say that we're launching a new brand, and we're, we're we provide learning and development solutions for empowering people to create change, right? And so we have an e-learning platform that we're launching. Um, we've been piloting it for some time and we're ready to launch it. So in April, we will be launching our e-learning, which will allow individuals, um, so anybody who wants to, to learn more about diversity, equity, and inclusion topics to learn on their own. And then also for startups and corporate entities, they'll now be able to roll out diversity, equity, and inclusion learning at scale across their organizations. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I think something that we um, have to lean into a bit more as, as practitioners and facilitators of learning in this space of DEI is that um, people learn differently, right? And so, you know, we have to make sure that we have multiple ways and multiple modalities for people to deepen their own learning and understanding. Some people are, are very much focused and receive better outcomes when they're on their own learning learning journey path, right? So it's kind of self-paced mm -hmm. that they're able to, you know, but and then some people are like, I need to be in the presence of others. I need to be able to socialize around what, how I'm processing this information. So I love that you're adding um, that to your platform. And um, and we look forward to hearing more about it in April when the, when the time is, is comes you. for you to be able to unveil all the things about it. <laughs> I appreciate you. Thank you for asking. No, absolutely. So we just have a few more minutes here left today. And I'm checking the chat to make sure I haven't missed any questions. I am seeing some good commentary there, though. So it would engage. I yeah, I would certainly um, invite this community to make sure you're paying attention to the chat. Um, but what have I not asked you about today that you have a lot of energy and passion around and that you want to socialize? Oh, I know it could be anything under the umbrella of just, I mean, just anything. If there's something that's going on that's really significant um, that you feel like is, is worthy of sharing with this community, I want to give you that chance and opportunity to do so. Big question, I know. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. You know, um, I think there's so many different assumptions that everybody makes around empathy and allyship in particular that I encourage everybody to really think about something that they they might have just not thought of. The, something that they're they're not really learning about, no matter who we are. I mean, I am still working mm -hmm. on being a better ally for different people with different types of disabilities, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's a lifelong journey because um, there's always more to learn. So I, I encourage everybody listening, everybody watching the, um, to really think about what is, what is that, you know, is there something that I can still learn and then take action and learn it and then take action and perhaps have a conversation with somebody that you don't normally have a conversation with and really start to build deeper empathy for them, show empathy for your experience, their experience, and then, you know, take action, take action and support. Yeah. What, what does that look like? You know, that might be now it, it can be a number of things. It's really building in that moment of understanding that you'll find the answer to what, what allyship looks like. Yeah, no, I love that, Melinda. And I, I do. I did notice that there was a question in the chat that I did not see before. So while we have just a bit more time, I want to see if I can sneak this one in as well. But the question pertains to sometimes when we are um, we have good intentions and we are being an ally, um, we want to make sure that we aren't um, overstepping boundaries where it will cause mm. someone to feel disempowered, right? And so what are some tips that you have around balancing that? Um, it, just to reiterate again, the, the point of really understanding where somebody wants support is crucial. And yeah. we have to make assumptions that, um, I think actually it just as an example, mentorship 
is um, mm -hmm. we, we often think somebody doesn't have the skills that they need. And so we start to mentor them. Perhaps they already have the skills and they just need opportunities. They just need doors opened up for them. They need a sponsor. <laughs> exactly. Sponsor. Exactly. Yeah. They need a sponsor. So we, we sometimes make assumptions that somebody doesn't have the skills that they need to get ahead, but perhaps they do have those skills. They just haven't been given the opportunities. How can you as an ally then, then take action and give them opportunities, recommend them for opportunities, amplify their voice so that they get more opportunities. There's lots of different ways that you can support them, but you need to know like whether or not they have those skills before making that assumption. So just awesome. as an example, I think also sometimes that comes up when you're deciding whether or not to interrupt a microaggression, right? right. You In that moment, are you going to cause more harm it, um, by by highlighting um that 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 happened you know and that's it's a real that's a real question you have to gauge yeah. in that moment are you going to cause more harm to the person that's already experiencing microaggression or right. uh, and and so you need to gauge in that moment there's no perfect answer there's no one answer um and i would say part of it is checking back in with that person afterwards you know if you right. interrupted a microaggression check in with the person that experienced the microaggression, see how they're doing. Yeah. How can you support them? Is, is what you did something that um, it was helpful or not? And talk about it, like have a discussion. I mean, it's have a vulnerable discussion. If you want to be a good ally, you have to have those conversations. I love that. And to keep a place into the chat, just making yourself open for feedback. You know, we have to, again, yeah. that's that learning, unlearning, relearning. Yes. And mm -hmm. being okay with whatever yeah, worked or didn't work in that one situation, mm -hmm. you know, may have the opposite impact in another situation. So don't mm -hmm. feel defeated if that, if the feedback is, you know what, you really embarrassed me and I wish you had not have done that for X, Y, Z reasons. That's that person in that situation. And don't let that cause us to go back to the sidelines, right? Yeah. We have to stay at it, knowing that it's, it's, we're constantly having to figure this out and navigate, yeah. but just be open to that, that, that journey and that learning process. Yeah. And it, you know, you're going to make mistakes. We all make mistakes. I mean, that's a part of the learning journey. When we make right. a mistake, we apologize for it, right? We correct mm -hmm. any harm that we might've been caused. And then we keep yeah. going, we learn from it. We do better next time. And that, exactly. that is so important um, as a part of the process of allyship is that learning that again, we, you are always learning. We're always, and you need to forgive yourself when you do um, make a mistake. Right. Extend grace to yourself and to others. I love this. So much great nuggets that we've have had the opportunity to hear you share during this hour of time. And we are now at the top of the hour. We have shared your information, Melinda, into the chat for this community. And there's some folks who are already saying in the chat they want you to come speak at their organization. So there's been some great value. But thank yeah. you so much for coming and sharing with us. We really do appreciate it. I also want to thank each of you as our um, audience and even those who joined um, live via LinkedIn for being here with us. If this information has been useful to you, then once the podcast releases and the replay is out, which will be again, just pretty much today over the weekend, we'd love for you to share it out with those in your network. So thanks so much for being here. Have a great and safe weekend. Bye-bye. Thank you everybody. Bye.